You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I don't know if you're a, a fan of the Marvel movies, but recently my wife and I settled down and watched The Black Widow, starring Scarlett Johansson. Towards the end of the movie, there's a twist in the plot involving Natasha and her mother, Melania. What you thought was a decisive moment of betrayal actually turns out to be a moment of heroism and loyalty. And the way you find this out is through a powerful storytelling device. One that movie directors will sometimes use, the end of Ocean's Eleven also comes to mind, where at at a climactic moment, the movie sort of rewinds the story. And you rewatch the same scene, but this time, you're given more information, more of the dialogue, a, a different camera angle, stuff that you didn't see the first time that you saw the scene, and the audience, now totally blown away at this point, finds out what actually happened behind the scenes. And the whole time as the viewer, you're saying to yourself, oh, that's what really happened. That is the same storytelling strategy found in the ancient blockbuster hit, The Book of Revelation. See, a lot of people, maybe some of us here today, think that the sole purpose of revelation is prediction, what lies ahead, but the book also provides spiritual perception, what lies behind. See, the point is not just to foretell, but to offer intel, to rewind back through the story of redemption and to give a behind-the-scenes take on what really happened and why from the perspective of heaven. What we find in today's passage is an invitation to rewind back to one of the best-known stories in all the Bible, the Christmas story, and to take another look from heaven's perspective, what was actually going on behind the shepherds keeping watch of their flock by night, uh, behind the singing angels, the, the magi, the young mother Mary, and the little baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. What was behind the scenes of the nativity scene, Revelation 12 tells us. It was war, a spiritual war. We see this across three dramatic scenes that correspond with the chapter's three paragraphs. See, in the opening scene, we encounter a great sign, a symbolic heavenly vision, and we're introduced to three main characters. First, there was a woman. By the way that she's described, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars, she's clearly not just any ordinary woman. She's larger than life. In fact, she's royal, a queen of sorts. And we're told she's pregnant and crying out 
and birth pains. So who is this woman? Well, of course, she appears to be Mary, the mother of Jesus. But at other times, she also looks like Eve, especially when you hear the echoes of Genesis 3.15 in the passage, the serpent, the woman, and the promised deliverer. But at other times, still, the woman appears to refer collectively to the church. After all, the prophets often use the metaphor of a bride or a childbearing woman to describe God's people. Who is she? She's Mary. She's Eve. She's the church. And maybe it shouldn't surprise us that this woman might have multiple mean, meanings in this dreamlike vision. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my dreams, sometimes characters were sort of shapeshift. You know, one moment I'm talking to my son, the next moment I'm talking to my fifth grade English teacher. I don't know how it happens, but there it is, the nature of dreams and visions. She's Mary, she's Eve, she's the church. And then there was, secondly, the woman's baby. We're told in verse 5 she gave birth to a male child. But this, too, was no ordinary child. He's a conquering king, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a quote of Psalm 2. An old psalm about the Messiah who subdues his enemies and reigns over the whole world. Oh, what child is this? You got it. It's King Jesus. But last yet not least, there was a dragon. A great red dragon. He is massive. Seven heads. And destructive. He's got ten horns. And he's furious with rage. And he's wearing seven royal diadems or or crowns. Because he's an oppressive tyrant, you see, a prince of darkness. This dragon is Satan. Verse 9 tells us so, that ancient serpent, referring to Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And here he is seeking to devour the woman's child, seeking to do whatever he can to destroy the promised king. Even, we know through redemptive history recorded in the book of Matthew, even by putting it into King Herod's heart, to satanically slaughter every boy in Bethlehem two years and younger because of the perceived threat of a newborn king. This brings us to the second scene in verses 7 through 12, which envisions a war in heaven. We're told that the archangel Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels, and they were defeated. And as a result, they were expelled from heaven and thrown down to earth where the devil and his demons now roam with great wrath. Now, this is all looking like sci-fi stuff that's confusing and hard to understand. There are several ways historically that this has been interpreted, this wild picture. Among the better readings... One is that this depicts the fall of Satan and his demons, their original expulsion from heaven long ago. Another interpretation is that this is a snapshot of what took place in heaven 
during Christ's death and resurrection here on earth. A heavenly view. As Colossians 2.15 tells us, God disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Which perhaps is why in verse 10 there's a loud voice that announces in this scene the salvation of Christ has now come. Now, either reading you go with the main point is the same. Satan, in a real way, has been defeated. And if the second scene describes a war in heaven, then the third and final scene in verses 13 through 17 depicts a war on earth. The dragon is thrown down, his tyranny broken, but his work of terror and destruction continues on earth. He's failed to destroy the child king, so now he moves on to target the woman. And here she appears to stand for the church, God's people. The serpent pursues her, even spews water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, we're told in verse 15, to drown her, to destroy her, to destroy us, God's people. Every step of the way, however, God protects And helps her. And even so, furious and frustrated, the dragon and his armies go off to prowl the earth and make war, verse 17, on the rest of her offspring. That's the faithful offspring of Eve, the brothers and sisters of Christ. War is waged on earth, even as it was in heaven. A quick snapshot and summary of this passage. What does it all mean for us this Advent? What are some lessons that we can draw from this briefly for? Number one, you and I are caught up in a cosmic conflict. We are surrounded by a spiritual war of cosmic proportions. But far too many of us, even among professing Christians, move about our day with what you might call secular sensibilities, totally unaware that there is, in fact, a spiritual realm beyond what our physical eyes can see. Recently, one morning, as my kids were getting ready for school, putting on their coats and tying their shoes, my five-year-old daughter gasped and said, Daddy, what's that? And it took me a second, but pretty quickly I came to understand what she was pointing at because I saw it too, a beam of the morning sunlight cutting through the room from the window at just the right angle to reveal a bunch of little sparkly things floating in the air. And so I explained to her that, yeah, there's always dust in the air. We just usually can't see it. And then I added unhelpfully without any explanation, yeah, and we just breathe it in all the time. And then we just left. (laughs) Revelation 12 is that beam of morning light. 
And it's helping us to see spiritual realities that we don't normally see, even though they're always right there in the very air we breathe. As theologian Richard Lovelace has put it, we've replaced medieval superstition with enlightenment substition, under-believing in the spiritual and the sublime. But, beloved, the devil is real. He's not the comical dude in the red suit holding a pitchfork. He's a personal embodiment of pure evil. And he doesn't live in hell. He's prowling around on earth. And in the words of pastor and author John Mark Comer, the devil is not a fictional villain from a Harry Potter novel. He is a real and cunning source of evil and the most powerful and influential creature in the world. And he, along with his invisible occupying army of fallen angels called demons, are waging a war of darkness, rebellion, and destruction against the kingdom of Christ and the people of Christ. Do you believe this today? You might ask, well, how does he do this? What are his weapons of warfare? Well, first of all, it's accusation. Devil means one who slanders or falsely accuses. See, he is constantly whispering in our hearts charges against God. Does God really love you? Uh, you think he really cares about you? Is God really good? Do you hear the whispers? It's slander against God, you know. And as the accuser, he also brings charges against us to God. Standing almost before the throne of God, as it were, saying, how can you forgive this ungrateful sinner? And again, you can't possibly love her. You can't possibly save him. Accusation, one of his greatest pieces and arsenal, his pieces of his arsenal, one of his greatest weapons. Secondly, deception. Verse 9 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. In John 8, Jesus says of Satan, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. It's the only thing he knows how to speak. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And so it's his normal work to make evil look good. To make sin look attractive. And to make righteousness look boring or ugly. He's lying to you, you know. And lying to the world. It's obviously closely related to his work of temptation. He obscures even the beauty of Christ. He twists the truth of the gospel. And he offers us counterfeit comforts. Things that might soothe us for a time, but lead us down into even deeper pains and destruction. And they are all lies. Accusation, accusation, deception, and destruction. Satan, you know, means enemy or adversary. 
His whole existence is devoted to opposing the reign of God. Not only does he do everything that he can to block the spread of the gospel, he works against the extension of the kingdom of God. And he brings to bear every force of resistance against that kingdom. Against the kingdom of light, he brings darkness into the world. Against the kingdom of life, he brings death. Against the kingdom of wholeness, he brings disease. Against the kingdom of freedom, he brings oppression into our world. And it's for this reason that we can understand that the devil, as Professor Loveless has said, is the ultimate oppressor from whose bitter tyranny we all long to be freed. And where we can understand that the unjust systems which starve people or enslave their souls are created by human tyrants, but their ultimate designer is Satan. You see, his work is not just to tempt and tease you individually, but he works his evil out structurally. Humanity in general, says the professor, is afflicted by the destroyer through the structures of injustice and oppression of which the flesh and the devil are joint architects. Almost every broken, dark, dying, decaying thing in our world can trace its source back in part to the work of the devil. The one who is constantly waging war against the true king, the Messiah, Jesus. You see, friends, we live presently in this fallen world in occupied territory. A counterfeit prince now reigns here, the prince of darkness. We are surrounded by a spiritual war of cosmic proportions, but some of us live as if we're in a water gun fight or a paintball game, oblivious to the mortal combat all around us. What do you see? What do you perceive? This brings us to the second lesson. This one's more brief. God will protect you in the midst of the fight. See, the woman is threatened by this menacing, bloodthirsty dragon. But in verse 6, she flees into the wilderness, just like the Israelites did, escaping Pharaoh's army in Exodus. And there she finds a place prepared by God in which she's nourished, taken care of. In verse 14, we're told that she was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly out of the serpent's reach. This language clearly echoes God's words in Exodus 19 when he said to his people after their rescue from Egypt, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Friends, it should be of great comfort and insurance to us to read this passage and to understand that from the beginning of time, the devil has been waging war, this war that's being portrayed here, trying to trip, stumble, and defeat the purposes of Christ from the beginning. 
and he has not succeeded yet. Through every page of the Old Testament scriptures, you see him working his schemes again and again, trying to stop the rise of the king. And yet he fails every time. Why? Because God is on our side. Because God is our protector. Because God is our provider and our nourisher. As Jesus says in John 10, 28 about his sheep, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And the Apostle Paul offers these words of indomitable assurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither angels nor demons nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Friends, you may not be unscathed in the fight, but you will be forever secure. But we have more than protection. In fact, we have authority in spiritual conflict. Our third lesson, you have authority over the enemy. One of my great delights this past fall was watching my son participate in a local rec soccer league. And I say watching really with scare quotes because I think I was more invested even than he was at times, (laughs) wanting him to play well and grow as a player. And I remember one game in particular, this referee was on the field, donned in his striped uniform as referees will often wear and yet every time a foul was committed unjustly of course against our team he he would sort of gesture to the kids to stop but would seem to forget to blow that little thing that he had hanging around his neck the whistle again and again play after play something would happen and he'd start gesturing with his hands and refuse or forget to blow the whistle. I tried my best not to become one of those dads, if you know what I mean. But pretty soon he remembered or realized, or maybe it was me that was yelling at him, he started to use that which audibly conveyed his authority on the field, his ability to stop what was happening, to direct the players, to get their attention. Friends, you have authority in Christ over the spiritual forces of darkness, even the devil himself. But too many of us are wandering around the field, waving our arms, wishing things would just stop. Or wishing that the play would continue. Look, you're even wearing a uniform. You're clothed in Christ, says the word of God. And you have the whistle. You can get the devil's attention. You can direct him and even stop him. You're wearing the whistle. You're, you have the whistle in the uniform, the authority. Dear Christian, are you using it? Do you know you have it? You see, here's the good news. At the cross of Christ and the resurrection, We're told in verse 8, Satan was defeated. The great dragon was thrown down, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
Which is why 1 John 3.8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to, to destroy the works of the devil. Puritan Thomas Watson said this, Beside the two thieves crucified with Christ, there were two other invisible thieves crucified with him, sin and the devil. You see, the devil's not yet dead, but the death blow has already been dealt. That makes him a wounded animal, a dying dragon, still dangerous, but decisively defeated. And that means that you have the crown of the king that you can appeal to with spiritual authority over the forces of darkness. See, this is good news. This too is part of the gospel. Again, in Professor Lovelace's language, the gospel tells you that in your justification in Christ, you are accepted. The gospel tells you in your sanctification, you are free from the bondage of sin. And it tells you also through the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are not alone. But this too is what the gospel tells you. That in this spiritual conflict, you are in command. How? How, you say? What's my job here? What shall I do? Rebuke the devil? Well, yes, perhaps. But notice what this passage reveals to us, especially in verses 11 and 17. Something that's almost surprising about the way in which this authority is wielded. The ways in which we fight this warfare. Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. In verse 17, the dragon went off to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, what is going on here? First of all, notice that it says they have conquered him. Referring to the people of God, those who have given their lives in faithful obedience to him. Doesn't say, not, doesn't say Christ has conquered them, though that's true. It says they have, you have, you have that conquering power. Will you avail yourselves of it? But notice then what it is that conquers Satan and his forces. It's the blood of the Lamb. It's the word of their testimony. It's their obedience, them keeping the commandments of God and holding to the testimony of Jesus. Friends, the way that we exercise authority over the enemy is by the radical, incredible, supernatural, hell-piercing, devil-defeating work of believing in the blood of Jesus. Because nothing makes him flee quicker than being reminded of that 
which served as the guillotine over his head? What is the weapon in which we yield, wield over him? It's ordinary acts of obedience, faithfulness to the word of God. I mean, friends, this is unexpected. We're looking for something more out of a, well, Marvel movie, right? A a supernatural tool, a weapon, something. Well, it is supernatural, don't you know? But do you know every little act of obedience, every commitment to love, especially those that are hardest to love, every moment of faith, of believing in the promises of God, every work of self-denial, where you choose to put your roommate or your child or your neighbor or annoying co-worker first in love, is itself a declaration of war on the kingdom of darkness, of selfishness, of despair, and of death. That is where your victory lies. That is where you stand up against and resist the kingdom of darkness. For these referred to in this passage, they did so sacrificially, following Christ even unto death, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Nothing makes the devil run quicker than acts of sacrificial love and obedience to Christ. The well-known words of the great hymn say, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Friends, you have authority in this fight. And never forget, whatever else the devil is, the devil is always an enemy in retreat. Which brings us to our final point very briefly. Christ's full and final victory is yet to come. Why is the devil so mad? You heard it in verse 12. Because he knows his time is short. The end is coming. We heard the hymn of praise in verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Come, that's the language of Advent. The victory of Christ has already begun, has broken in. Advent victory begins. And it begins with Advent's lament appropriate to today's theme, isn't it? As we cry, seeing the death and destruction and decay and despair and darkness wrought by the work of the devil all around us, we cry, how long? We cry, how long, O Lord, even as we wait for the second advent, the final victory, 
as we peer over, as faith directs us to, over the edge of history, where we see a glimmer of light coming our way, about to break in indeed. That light that directs us to places like Romans 16.20, that tells us to say with hope, with confidence, with joy, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. That's the Advent victory coming your way, beloved. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.